Big ass election day coming up fast. It's time we got this country on a more enlightened path of the people, by the people, for the people too. How'd you like a president who makes those words come true? As it is, the money boys, they're calling all the shots. They own their politicians like they own their bonds and stocks. Working man, woman too, barely getting by. The promise of America has hung them out to dry. Planet Earth, home sweet home. Mother of us all. Too bad we take for granted this amazing spinning ball. Use it up, spew it out, concoct a toxic brew. I would like to know: Is this the best that we can do? Sad to say, the media—they think it's all a game, fact or fiction, just the means to keep us entertained. Endless wars, homicides, prisons full of men. Simple question: Will it change? If not now, tell me when. Big ass election day coming up fast. It's time we got this country on a more enlightened path. Of the people, by the people, for the people too. How'd you like a president who makes those words come true? And that was. Big Ass Election Day by Tom Sturdivant, which you can find on YouTube by searching for Tom Sturdivant, S-T-U-R-D-E-V-A-N-T. And at the end of the program, we'll hear Feel the Burn, an anthem for Bernie Sanders. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or pack. If you want to send me a message, you can do that at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can find out more about the Bernie 2016 podcast at Bernie-2016.com. You can find old episodes of this program on that site and you can find the link to my flipboard magazine bernie for president where i am up to 7700 articles on bernie and his run the american people are catching on they understand that something is profoundly wrong 
when in our country today, the top one-tenth of one percent own almost as much wealth as the bottom 90%, and when the 20 richest people own more wealth than the bottom 150 million Americans, half of our population. They know that the system is rigged when the average person is working longer hours for lower wages, while 58% of all new income goes to the top 1%. They also know that a handful of people on Wall Street have extraordinary power over the economic and political life of our country. As most people know, in the 1990s and later, the financial interests spent billions of dollars in lobbying and campaign contributions to force through Congress the deregulation of Wall Street, the repeal of Glass-Steagall Act, and the weakening of consumer protection laws in states. They spend this money in order to get the government off their backs and to show the American people what they could do with that new one, freedom. Well, they sure showed the American people. In 2008, the greed, recklessness, and illegal behavior on Wall Street nearly destroyed the U.S. and global economy. Millions of Americans lost their jobs, their homes, and their life savings. While Wall Street received the largest taxpayer bailout in the history of the world with no strings attached, the American middle class continues to disappear. Poverty is increasing, and the gap between the very rich and everyone else is growing wider and wider. And Wall Street executives still receive huge compensation packages as if the financial crisis they created never happened. Greed, fraud, dishonesty, and arrogance. These are the words that best describe the reality of Wall Street today. So to those on Wall Street who may be listening today, let me be very clear. Greed is not good. In fact, the greed of Wall Street and corporate America is destroying the fabric of our nation. And here is a New Year's resolution that I will keep if elected president. If you do not end your greed, we will end it for you. We will no longer tolerate an economy and a political system that has been rigged by Wall Street to benefit the wealthiest Americans in this country at the expense of everyone else. While President Obama deserves credit for improving this economy after the Wall Street crash, the reality is that a lot there the reality is that a lot of unfinished business remains to be done. Our goal must be to create a financial system and an economy that works for all Americans, not just a handful of billionaires. That means that we have got to end, once and for all, the scheme that is nothing more than a free insurance policy for Wall Street, the policy of too big to fail. We need a banking system that is part of the productive economy making loans at affordable rates to small and medium-sized businesses so that we create decent-paying jobs. Wall Street cannot continue to be an island unto itself, gambling trillions in risky financial instruments, making huge profits, and assured that if their schemes fail, the taxpayers will be there to bail them out. In 2008, the taxpayers of this country bailed out Wall Street because we were told that they were, quote, too big to fail. Yet today, three out of the four largest financial institutions, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, 
are nearly 80% bigger than before we bailed them out. Incredibly, the six largest banks in this country issue more than two-thirds of all credit cards and more than 35% of all mortgages. They control more than 95% of all financial derivatives and hold more than 40% of all bank deposits. Their assets are equivalent to nearly 60% of our GDP. Enough is enough. If a bank is too big to fail, it is too big to exist. When it comes to Wall Street reform, that must be our bottom line. This is true not just from a risk perspective and the fear of another bailout. It is also true from the reality that a handful of huge financial institutions simply have too much economic and political power over this country. If Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican trust buster, were alive today, he would say, break them up. And he would be right. And here's how I will accomplish that. Within the first hundred days of my administration, I will require the Secretary of Treasury Department to establish a too-big-to-fail list of commercial banks, shadow banks, and insurance companies whose failure would pose a catastrophic risk to the United States economy without a taxpayer bailout. Within one year, my administration will break these institutions up so that they no longer pose a grave threat to the economy as authorized under Section 121 of the Dodd-Frank Act. And I will fight to reinstate a 21st century Glass-Steagall Act to clearly separate commercial banking, investment banking, and insurance services. Let's be clear. This legislation, introduced by my colleague Senator Elizabeth Warren, aims at the heart of the shadow banking system. In my view, Senator Warren is right. Dodd-Frank should have broken up Citigroup and other too-big-to-fail banks into pieces. And that's exactly what we need to do. And that's what I commit to do as president. And that is the beginning of Bernie's recent speech on Wall Street and our economic system. And uh, he gave that yesterday in New York. And it goes on to a very, very good speech. Um, I definitely encourage you to uh, find that and watch it. Covers a lot of what he proposes to help um, straighten out the banking and monetary system in our country and make it work more for the middle class and the poor and less exclusively for the rich and the powerful. And this next piece is from Wired.com by Issy Lepowski. Sanders' new canvassing app onboards volunteers in seconds. So you want to knock on doors for your favorite presidential candidate? Traditionally, you'd have to formally sign up as a volunteer, meet with a member of the campaign staff, undergo a training session, and get a list of names and a stack of flyers before you could be on your way. The Bernie Sanders campaign just condensed that process into a matter of seconds with a new canvassing app that makes volunteering in the field as easy as downloading the app, logging in, and getting started. The app, called Field the Burn, 
launched in the Apple App Store on Monday and was fittingly developed by a merry band of grassroots volunteers affiliated with the groups Feel the Burn and Coders for Sanders. Now the Sanders team has absorbed the app as its own, enabling it to funnel the data collected on Field the Burn directly into the campaign's main voter database. The new tool is only the latest example of how Sanders' young, tech-savvy supporter base has raised his profile throughout this campaign. On platforms like Reddit, they've successfully built the largest subreddit for any presidential campaign so far. They've built tools like Debate with Bernie that let, fel- let, that let followers automatically retweet Sanders on debate nights. On volunteer-built sites like feeltheburn.org, they've helped break down Sanders' policy platforms to make them easier for the general public to understand. With Field of the Burn, they're now helping online activists take their work to the streets, which, says Sanders' digital director, Kenneth Pennington, is still the most crucial part of any campaign. Quote, although we're running a very modern campaign and we do have a lot of people out there coding amazing projects for Bernie, he says, we still believe in the traditional knock on the door to get the message out. In early voting states like Iowa, Sanders' campaign has a robust field staff to do that work. According to Daniela Perdomo, the creator of feeltheburn.org, who helped conceive of this app, the purpose of this tool is to enable the Sanders team to run a ground game even in states where it doesn't have a major staff presence. Quote, There's no point in disincentivizing people in places like New York from getting information now just because the campaign isn't yet in the state of New York, says Perdomo. On the app, supporters get access to information on how to canvas, including sample scripts and information on Sanders' platforms. Volunteers can see where other canvassers have been, but they're free to knock on any door they choose. As they move from home to home, they can enter an address and input information on people's names, party affiliations, and how interested or disinterested they are in voting for Sanders. That information gets sent straight to the Sanders campaign. Volunteers get five points for every door they knock on and ten points for every piece of information they update so they can see how they rank against other volunteers. There are, of course, risks associated with encouraging people to represent a campaign without formal training and supervision, but Pennington says the rewards are far greater. Led by Chief Engineer Josh Smith, volunteers spent a total of 1,400 hours working on the app, a job that Perdomo estimates would have cost the campaign $250,000 had they hired a firm to build it. Quote, we're taking advantage of real distributed organizing and giving volunteers the responsibility and leadership ability we know they can handle, Pennington says. We can do so much more because we're empowering these volunteers. So another example, I talked previously about feeltheburn.org, really great website that uh, shows off a lot of Bernie Sanders policy positions and has um, some printable materials on there as well. Um, and uh, it's it's these kind of grassroots efforts that aren't directly connected to the campaign that really help propel and further the campaign itself. Even though uh, Bernie Sanders has raised a, a heck of a lot of money, we'll talk more about that in a story coming up, 
um, the campaign can't be everywhere and do everything. And the work of these um, enthusiastic unpaid volunteers doing, you know, um, various different projects to get the word out and to uh, become the media really is going to play a major role in getting Bernie Sanders elected. And this next piece is from politicalpeopleblog.com. And it is not signed by the looks of it. And the title is, Bernie Sanders is far better equipped to win the general election than Hillary Clinton. One of the main lines of attack against Bernie Sanders is the claim that he is simply unelectable and that Hillary Clinton has a far better chance of winning the general election for the Democrats. It is becoming increasingly clear, however, that Sanders and not Clinton is far more likely to beat the GOP nominee. Why is this? Firstly, enthusiasm is the basis of Sanders' campaign. He exuberates a sense of idealism that is very appealing to many voters. A large number of left-leaning Democratic voters have become disillusioned with the mainstream of the Democratic Party and therefore have turned to the alternative message of hope conveyed by Bernie Sanders. A recent study found that on average Sanders supporters are far more enthusiastic about their candidate than Clinton ones are. The reason why enthusiasm is so important is because it is what drives turnout. If you are unenthusiastic about a candidate and are only thinking about voting for them on the basis of blind allegiance, then you are far less likely to vote for that candidate. If the Democrats are to win the presidency, they will need to reinvigorate the base and get them out to vote. The 1936 U.S. presidential election was one of the most interesting ever. Although some political pundits predicted a close race, Roosevelt went on to win the greatest electoral landslide since the beginning of the current two-party system in the 1850s. He won 60.8% of the vote, compared to Alf Landon's 36.5%. Roosevelt won by a huge amount, carrying 46 of the 48 states and bringing in many additional Democratic members of Congress. After fellow Democrat Lyndon Johnson's 61.1% share of the popular vote in 1964, Roosevelt's 60.8% is the second largest percentage in U.S. history since the nearly unopposed election of James Monroe in 1820 and his 98.5% of the electoral vote. There was one big factor which played a key part in both Roosevelt's and Johnson's wins. Turnout. It has been statistically proven that when a larger numbers of people turn up to vote, Democrats do better than Republicans. The harsh reality is, though, that in the majority of elections, often older white males turn up to vote far more often than, for example, younger members of the African-American community or even women. This disproportionate representation at the voting booth, in most cases, benefits the Republican candidate as they are aware that the people most likely to vote, white males on a steady income, have a tendency to vote for the GOP. Therefore, the key to success for the Democrats in the past has been forming coalitions of voters, members from the Hispanic, African-American, and the white communities, and giving these ethnic groups a reason to go out and vote. 
During the LBJ Roosevelt era, people were still feeling the effects of the Great Depression, which they attributed as being caused by the GOP. Masses of people that wouldn't ordinarily vote felt compelled to go out and have their voice heard. Similarly, in 2008, a systematic and societal change was desired in America, and so large numbers of people who would normally have perceived voting as an eccentric irrelevancy went out and partook in the democratic process. They voted for Barack Obama. The fact of the matter is that Bernie Sanders is in a far better position to get people out to vote than Hillary Clinton is. Firstly, he is far more popular among the base who love his purest approach and principled, consistent record. Secondly, he is far more likely to win over independent voters than Hillary Clinton is. If Sanders can manage to win the nomination, the presidency would be guaranteed for the Democrats. If Hillary won, won it, we couldn't be so sure. And this story goes on further, but it, that's just one of the reasons why Bernie Sanders is more electable in the general election than Hillary Clinton is. Hillary has a lot of baggage. Being a part of the former Clinton administration, when a great wall of the right wing kind of rose up and solidified in opposition against Clinton, that is part of Hillary's legacy too. Even though she wasn't the president at the time, she is still deeply connected to that administration. And the way that the people felt about her husband's administration carries forward and those feelings are still still out there and still uh, widespread. And you can see that throughout the right-wing media, um, especially the, uh, the talk media and punditry. There's just a, a, a significant obstacle that she has in trying to win over um, moderates and trying to win over independent voters. Independent voters by a large margin support Sanders more than they support Clinton. And that would happen in the general election as well. So in my opinion, um, Bernie Sanders is much better suited to win the general election than Hillary Clinton is, despite uh, the belief out there that Hillary Clinton is more experienced. Really, political experience-wise, um, they are not all that far apart. Um, Bernie Sanders has been in politics his entire life. Uh, Hillary Clinton has been connected, but not really directly in politics until she ran for the Senate in New York, where she served, I believe, eight years in the Senate before becoming Secretary of State. She has experience and she has the right experience, but she certainly doesn't have more experience than Bernie Sanders has. And this next piece is from the Bernie Sanders campaign at BernieSanders.com. And it is a reprint of an article or a reposting of an article by Dave Johnson. In the recent post, quote, how the Clinton and Sanders infrastructure plans measure up, I mistakenly wrote that candidate Bernie Sanders does not yet have a corporate tax proposal. Oops, 
It turns out that Sanders does have a detailed corporate tax plan to pay for his infrastructure plan. He introduced the plan as a Senate bill shortly before announcing his run for the Democratic nomination for president. It's called the Corporate Tax Dodging Prevention Act. So let's take a look at it. Senator Bernie Sanders' Corporate Tax Dodging Prevention Act is summarized in an April 14 Senate Budget Committee blog post. 1. Ending the rule allowing American corporations to defer paying federal income taxes on profits of their offshore subsidiaries. This would immediately bring in up to $620 billion of federal tax revenue currently owed on, quote, offshore profits, but deferred. It would also make available in the U.S. more than $2 trillion of corporate profits that have been have been kept offshore, which could be reinvested or distributed to shareholders. Additionally, this would increase federal tax revenue by as much as $90 billion each year thereafter. These amounts are based on a report from Citizens for Tax Justice in the U.S. PERG Education Fund titled, quote, Offshore Shell Games. A second look at the amounts owed by these companies detailed in a letter to Congress titled 24 International Tax Experts Address Current Tax Reform Efforts in Congress sets the amount this would bring in at, quote, about $900 billion over 10 years. Number two, closing loopholes allowing American corporations to artificially inflate or accelerate their foreign tax credits. A current loophole allows corporations to claim foreign tax credits for taxes paid on foreign income, even if that income is not subject to current U.S. tax. This closes that loophole. 3. Preventing American corporations from claiming to be foreign by using a tax haven post office box as their address. This would stop American corporations from avoiding U.S. taxes by claiming to be a foreign company because they have a post office box in a tax haven country. Sanders' bill says a corporation could not claim to be from another country if their management and control operations are primarily located in the U.S. Number four, preventing American corporations from avoiding U.S. taxes by, quote, inverting. In an inversion, an American corporation acquires or merges with a usually much smaller foreign company and then claims that the newly merged company is a foreign one for tax purposes even though the majority of the ownership is unchanged and little or no personnel or operations have actually moved offshore. Under Sanders' bill, the U.S. would continue to tax such a company as an American corporation so long as it is still majority-owned by the owners of the American party to the merger or acquisition. Number five, prevent foreign-owned corporations from stripping earnings out of the U.S. by manipulating debt expenses. This stops multinational corporations from loaning up their U.S.-based corporation with debt to companies they own outside of the U.S. as a way to shift profits out of the U.S. company. They make interest payments to the foreign companies, deduct it, and this reduces or wipes out their U.S. income for tax purposes. Number six, preventing large oil companies from disguising royalty payments to foreign governments as foreign taxes. U.S. oil and gas companies have been disguising royalty payments to foreign governments as foreign taxes in order to claim foreign tax credits. Sanders' bill would stop this. 
Sanders has proposed a detailed plan for addressing the country's infrastructure needs with an investment of $1 trillion. His plan to close several corporate tax loopholes appears to raise the necessary funds to cover this. Ending deferral alone would bring in $620 billion and another $90-plus billion each year following. This would raise the necessary funds. On top of this, the Senate, Senate's Joint Committee on Taxation took a look at Sanders' bill and a, quote, partial score concluded that items 2 through 6 would bring in an additional $133 billion. The Washington Post fact-checker looked at Sanders' plan to fund infrastructure by closing these corporate tax loopholes and concluded that, quote, what matters most is that Sanders' claim of raising $1 trillion is at least credible, assuming the money is not also earmarked for other spending projects. So that is a piece of Bernie Sanders' tax plan part focused on closing some of the uh, corporate tax loopholes that are out there and retaining a, a lot more of those corporate tax dollars that otherwise would be owed to the U.S. government without the loopholes that those corporations have helped to uh, enact. And this next story is from KMBC.com. And this is by Dan Merica from CNN. Bernie Sanders raised $33 million in the final three months of 2015, his campaign said in a statement Saturday, failing to outraise Hillary Clinton, but smashing the goal aid set when the Vermont senator launched his campaign back in May. Sanders Hall, which brings us 2015 total to $73 million was almost exclusively buoyed by his prodigious online fundraising operation. Aides told CNN that Sanders received over $2.5 million in donations in 2015. Sorry. Aides told CNN that Sanders received over 2.5 million donations in 2015 from 1 million different individuals. Clinton's campaign announced Friday that it raised $37 million for the primary campaign in the last three months of 2015, easily surpassing the $100 million goal the campaign had set earlier in the year. Quote, This people-powered campaign is revolutionizing American politics, Jeff Weaver, Sanders' campaign manager, said in a statement. Quote, what we are showing is that we can run a strong national campaign without a super PAC and without depending on millionaire and billionaires for their support. We are making history and we are proud of it. In the final quarter of 2015, also saw Sanders dramatically increase his spending. According to aides, the campaign ended 2015 with $28.4 million cash on hand. That's only $2 million more than the $26.2 million the campaign had in the bank at the end of the third quarter of 2015. Much of that spending was focused on building infrastructure in the early primary states, including deploying organizers to South Carolina and Nevada, and building the campaign already existing organization in Iowa and New Hampshire. Sanders has long been a formidable fundraiser with deep roots in online and small donor fundraising but even some of his closest aides were unsure he could raise the money needed to run a presidential campaign when the 
when launched earlier in this year. Tad Devine, his top strategist, said that the operation had hoped to bring in between 40 and 50 million by the end of 2015. And they they beat that number by about 50% if they were looking for between 40 and 50 million. So um, Sanders has just had amazing, amazing results in fundraising from small donors. Um, he surpassed uh, Barack Obama's record for fundraising um, of about 2.2 million, I think, um, individual donations with his 2.5 million donations by the end of this calendar year or end of last calendar year. So uh, Bernie Sanders has definitely um, been able to raise the money to make him a strong contender for the nomination that um, on top of his um, policies and his platform have really propelled him to be a, uh, a force in this campaign and hopefully will bring him right through to the nomination. And the next piece is by Sean King. From the New York Daily News. In two districts once believed to be Hillary Clinton's strongholds, the state senators from Harlem and Queens, Bill Perkins and James Sanders Jr., will endorse Bernie Sanders instead, the Daily News has learned. The endorsements of local politicians, who often have been the best ground operations and better connections with actual voters, are highly coveted in a race like this. Harlem may be above anywhere else, has been considered not only as a Hillary Clinton stronghold, but as a Clinton family stronghold. After his presidency, Harlem is where Bill Clinton opened up his first office and called his home base for years. Whether you see what happened next as a revitalization or gentrification, his presence had a significant impact on Harlem. Hillary Clinton's greatest firewall in her bid to win the Democratic nomination for president is her overwhelming brand recognition and support in the African-American community. But many progressive black and Latino leaders are beginning to lean towards Bernie as we inch closer to the first primaries in 2016. While Clinton has a veritable who's who among black politicians behind her, having two of the most popular local politicians, both African-American, in her home state, go the other way, may underscore growing concerns in her base that an establishment politician is not the best solution for many of the ills facing black and brown communities. Perkins, a lifelong Democrat from Harlem, echoed this in his endorsement of Sanders Tuesday. Quote, we live in the richest country on earth, but a quarter of our children live in poverty, Perkins told me on Tuesday evening. We're proud of our freedoms, but we lock away more people than any nation on earth. Quote, the truth is that if you aren't wealthy in our current political system, your problems just don't matter, he added. Bernie Sanders is calling for a political revolution, and that's what it will take to transform our nation into one where we all matter. What's also very intriguing is that Perkins was actually the very first New York elected official to ever endorse Barack Obama for president, 
and he did it in a climate in which virtually every other leader around him already endorsed Clinton. State Senator James Sanders Jr., meanwhile, developed a strong reputation as a fierce advocate for the working class in Queens and beyond. Born and raised in Queens, Sanders Jr. served in the Marines before earning his degree in history at Brooklyn College and eventually becoming a councilman. For him, endorsing Sanders just made sense. Quote, in the Great Recession, families in the Southeast Queens lost their homes and their jobs. Across the nation, the savings of families was decimated, especially black families. Our families still haven't recovered, but the banks got away scot-free, and today those bankers are richer than ever. I'm inspired to join Bernie Sanders' political revolution, and it's not just because we share a name. It's because he wants to end the stranglehold Wall Street has on our economy and our democracy. He wants to break up the big banks and help make working families help working families get back on track. As I speak to progressive leaders across the country, I see a consistent conflict. Most of them seem to prefer Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton and feel that his values better match their own, but they aren't sure if an endorsement of Bernie for president is a waste since it will be such an uphill battle for him to actually win the nomination. When local New York politicians like Perkins and James Sanders make the plunge, it may loosen the lid on the jar for others who are a bit nervous about making the plunge. In Chicago, Choi Garcia, who forced a runoff in the recent mayoral election against Rahm Emanuel, has already started a campaigning for Bernie Sanders. With Rahm deeply embroiled in his mishandling of police brutality cases, it is hard not to see him as one of the most loyal Clinton allies in the country. Sanders is still a long shot, but in a complicated political climate, it seems like his odds may just be getting a little better. And this next piece is from peopleswar.wordpress.com. That is P-P-L-S-W-A-R.wordpress.com. Why did Bernie Sanders vote to fund the Iraq war? Michael Ari's widely read but rarely analyzed article Quote, Bernie Sanders' troubling history of supporting U.S. military violence abroad mentions in passing, quote, while it's true he voted against the Iraq war, he also voted in favor of authorizing funds for that war and the one in Afghanistan. Arya's statement is correct, but it also distorts Sta- Sanders' stance on funding the Iraq war by omission. His voting record on the bills that funded the Iraq war show that he voted against them more often than he voted for them. Additionally, his yay votes show that there were other considerations at play. And the article lists about 10 or 11 different bills for funding the Iraq war and about six of those um, Bernie Sanders voted against, and he voted for three of them. And those three were the Emergency Supplemental Appropriations Act for Defense, the Global War on Terror, and Hurricane Recovery 2006. The Department of Defense Appropriations Act of 2007, 
and the Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2008. And there was one bill that was passed by consent, which means not a direct vote by each member of Congress, but by unanimous consent. That was the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2011. And the article then continues. The Bush administration, backed by a Republican-controlled House and Senate, made a nasty habit of funding its disastrous occupation of Iraq on an emergency basis in order to minimize congressional scrutiny, circumvent legal limits on the federal government's debt ceiling, and understate the true cost of the war. The first time Sanders voted yay to an Iraq war spending bill came in 2006 when the bill included funding for Hurricane Katrina relief efforts. The second time he voted yay was when an amendment he inserted into the bill giving a $1 million grant to the Vermont Department of Veterans Affairs to help the returning veterans cope with their health care and mental health needs upon returning home. The third time he voted yay was when the legislation incorporated a massive expansion of GI Bill benefits that Sanders co-sponsored and the Bush administration opposed, guaranteeing full scholarships to veterans, including activated National Guard troops and reservists, with three years of service attending any public in-state university, and expanded benefits for students at private colleges and for graduate schools. The last time he voted yay was when he gave his consent, along with the entire U.S. Senate, to fund the Iraq War's end as President Obama removed all U.S. troops from the country. So is it correct to say that Sanders voted in favor of authorizing funds for the Iraq War? Yes, it is. But it is equally correct to say the exact opposite. Sanders voted against authorizing funds for the Iraq War. The point here is, whenever you come across an article that makes some visceral, outrageous claim about something Bernie Sanders allegedly did or said, don't jump to any hard and fast conclusions for or against him without first studying what he did and why. Then, and only then, can a sound political judgment be made. Perhaps the most important metric for assessing whether these votes were right or wrong is to figure out how many living, breathing veterans would have helped by voting against, would he have helped by voting against war funding bills that contained pro-veteran amendments? The answer is zero. And so while peace activists are lining up to condemn his campaign, veterans are lining up to join it. And finally, from realclearpolitics.com. At an event in Storm Lake, Iowa, Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders says that, quote, when we talk about making government more cost effective, it doesn't simply mean cutting Medicaid and food stamps. What it does mean is taking a hard look at an agency which receives $600 billion per year, where there's an immense amount of waste and fraud, Sanders said. We have a massive cost overruns with the defense contractors. We've got deployment after deployment for our soldiers, and we've got military families on food stamps. So uh, Bernie Sanders taking a stab at the massive defense budget 
um, calling out the fact that there is an enormous amount of fraud in it. And hopefully, when he is elected, we'll take some major steps to cleaning that up and returning some of that money into programs that will benefit more people than the uh, the bombers and the warships that that money goes to uh, build. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, provide me some feedback, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can find out more about this podcast at Bernie-2016.com. And as we go out tonight, we will hear the song Feel the Burn, an anthem for Bernie Sanders by Alex Vans which you can find on the Alex Vans YouTube page. Thanks for listening. <laughs>